This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Okay, good afternoon. I think uh, we're going to get started uh, this afternoon. Welcome to, um, this is the second in our series uh, on the implications of the Affordable Care Act for California as we implement it here in our state. Uh, This series is sponsored by our School of Public Health here at Berkeley, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and also our Robert Wood Johnson Foundation postdoctoral fellows in health policy as well. So I believe we have some people from uh, each of those constituencies here. Uh, and we really have a terrific session today. We decided we couldn't really cover these topics uh, without having two of the experts in the state who are uh, on the ground level dealing with some of these issues. So today, uh, I have the pleasure of introducing us to both Larry Levitt, who is with the Kaiser Family Foundation. I'll tell you a little bit about Mr. Levitt in a minute, and Bruce Bodakin, the chair and CEO of Blue Shield uh, here in the state. And together, they're going to be covering the issues and implications of uh, the Health Reform Act for the Medi-Cal population here in California, and then also in terms of the private uh, commercial market and some of the challenges uh, facing Blue Shield uh, along those lines, and others insurers as well. I'm going to introduce both of them uh, at the beginning, and then we'll begin with Mr. Levitt, followed by Mr. Bodak, and they will each speak for about a half hour. Uh, And that's going to allow us a good half hour then for your uh, questions, of which, given uh, a month or so ago, there'll be plenty of of great questions. So let me begin with with Larry Levitt, who is a senior vice president for special initiatives at the Kaiser Family Foundation. He's also a senior advisor to their president, and he's co-executive director of their initiative on health reform and private insurance. He has an extensive uh, background. I won't mention uh, everything, but before... Before joining the foundation, he was a senior manager uh, manager with the Lewin Group in the private sector, where he advised a number of public and private sector clients on health policy and financing. He also has experience, though, as a senior health policy advisor in the White House and the Department of Health and Human Services, and he worked on the development of President Clinton's Health Security Act and other health policy initiatives. Some of us who were around in those days remember uh, very much the Health Security Act and thought that there was going to be a marked change in U.S. health policy. At that point in time, we were a bit premature, uh, but it has now come, up, come about. He actually co-chaired the working group on cost containment on the president's task force on health reform at that time. He's also been a special assistant here in California to John Garamendi, where he co-authored Garamendi's re- 
report on California health care in the 21st century. He's been a medical economist with Kaiser Permanente earlier in his career where he worked on insurance reform. He also has experience in Massachusetts as well, which is another state that probably along with California is doing some of the most innovative work around implementing the uh, health reform legislation. Uh, Mr. Levitt holds a bachelor's degree in economics from UC Berkeley and a master's degree in public policy from the Kennedy School at Harvard. So he's got both coasts covered. Mr. Bodakin uh, is known to all of us here on campus. We've been very fortunate in having some of Bruce's time in teaching in our uh, concurrent degree program between the School of Public Health and the Haas School of Business. He's been the chairman and CEO at Blue Shield now for about 12 years, joining them in 1994. And during that time, they've been the fastest growing health plan in the state, more than doubling the company's enrollment and revenues have actually tripled during that time. They've won a number of competitions, for example, with uh, two large government contracts, one covering the California state employees, and then another one, the U.S. military and families are enrolled in the TRICARE program. Uh, Mr. Bodakin is highly committed to Blue Shield's not-for-profit mission, and in 2002, he was the first health plan CEO to offer a specific proposal to cover the uninsured, and that was uh, fairly uh, prominently uh, featured uh, nationally in various publications as well. His plan for universal coverage based on shared responsibility was very similar to what was proposed by Governor Schwarzenegger in 2007. He also started or uh, transformed the Blue Shield of California Foundation, and that's now one of the state's largest health care grant makers with more than $125 million in donations over the past four years. He's on a number of different boards, which I won't go into all the details. He's been an advisor to us here at Berkeley with our health services management program and has also been a key participant in the Berkeley Forum on Improving California's Healthcare System. This is something we've pulled together in the last six months or so. You'll be hearing more about it probably uh, after the first of the year because it'll be a part of the fourth presentation we'll be making on health reform implementation in California. So with that, please join me first in welcoming Mr. Levitt. Larry. Good afternoon. You can hear me okay? Great. Um, well, I'm going to broaden the topic just, just a bit here. It turns out uh, on health reform, California is actually the, uh, the easy case, at least when it comes to the, to the politics. Um, rarely is anything easy in California, but um, in this case, it's actually other states where where things are, are a little bit more, more complicated. Um, and uh, what I want to talk about now that we've gotten through the election um, is uh, what's ahead for, for health care programs, both the Affordable Care Act as well as existing programs, Medicare and, and Medicaid. Um, clearly, implementation of the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, is a big part of this, both in California and, and nationally. Uh, but also important, and, and frankly, maybe even more important, is what happens in deficit reduction talks that are ongoing now in, uh, in Washington, the, the dealing with the so-called fiscal cliff, which um, if, if you're in Washington right now, you really can't avoid. Um, it seems to have pushed, uh, pushed generals and their affairs off the front page. Um, so, you know, immediately after the election, uh -huh. um, 
the reaction of, of Republican leaders, who of course have been quite opposed to, to the Affordable Care Act from the start, was, was quite swift. Uh, Speaker John Boehner um, said right after the election that Obamacare is, is the law of the land, a pretty clear statement. Uh, but in fact, the reaction might have been just a, a little too swift, because on November 21st, he said, we can't afford it and we can't afford to leave it intact. That's why I've been clear that the law has to stand the table as both parties discuss ways to solve our nation's massive debt challenge. Um, and I suspect he had a few meetings um, in, in between those, uh, those, those two quotes. Um, you know, in spite of the, the second quote, I, I'd say the odds of, of repeal, which has been the goal of, of uh, conservatives in Washington, um, are infinitesimal at this point, uh, with Democrats controlling the Senate and the White House with President Obama. Um, but the odds of, of changes to, to the law uh, before it fully gets implemented in 2014 um, are certainly greater than that, particularly in the context of the deficit reduction talks. Um, and there are really two kind of key, key speed bumps ahead for, uh, for the implementation of the law. The first is states who right now are making decisions about whether to implement health insurance exchanges, which I know you've heard about from, from Peter Lee here in California, and also whether to expand their, their Medicaid programs. The second, as I mentioned, are the deficit reduction talks around, around the fiscal cliff. Um, over the coming weeks and months, uh, as I said, it's virtually all anyone in Washington is, is going to talk about, um, particularly how to avoid the cliff and um, how to achieve long-term deficit reduction. Um, Medicare and Medicaid in particular are over one-fifth of the federal budget, so they are completely unavoidable in, in any discussions about, about the budget and the deficit, and health is an even greater share now that you throw in the, the Affordable Care Act and the programs associated with that. Um, plus, I think Republicans, as part of these negotiations, uh, if they're going to agree to greater revenues, which I suspect they will ultimately, um, I, can, uh, I, I suspect that they're going to demand uh, reform of entitlement programs or spending reductions in entitlement programs like Medicare and Medicaid as a, uh, as a, as a price for that. Um, let me start with uh, implementation of the Affordable Care Act and, and the states um, and what's ahead with that. Uh, you know, so far, the politics and ideology have been the driving force behind the thinking of, of governors. Um, but, it, but as the decisions get more real and as they are getting more real, um, I think we'll, we'll see that shifting. Um, the fact of the matter is that while uh, red state governors are ideologically opposed to the law and, ha and have been so from, from the start, people who live in, in red or, or conservative states are actually more likely to benefit from the Medicaid expansion and the subsidies for low- and middle-income people that are, that are part of the law. Um, and this map, which is part of a, an interactive um, graphic on our website where you can look up in, any zip code around the country and find out what proportion of the people would benefit from the coverage expansions in the law. Um, if you know your uh, political geography, you can probably see that many of the, the darker areas where people will, uh, greater numbers of people will benefit tend to be in more conservative areas of the country. Um, on average, about 17% of people nationwide of, of the non-elderly population would benefit from the Medicaid expansion or subsidies for people who buy insurance in, in health insurance exchanges. Uh, but the range is tremendous. Uh, in parts of Florida, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, and California, um, over a third, 36 to 40% of the population would actually benefit from, from these expansions. Um, and 
governors, in fact, in Texas and Louisiana, have been quite vocal in their opposition. Um, the governor of Florida was also quite vocal in his op- opposition until the election, and it's, it's softened a bit since then. Um, in contrast, in areas of uh, Massachusetts, Hawaii, New York, Connecticut, all states that have either reformed their insurance markets or uh, expanded their Medicaid programs uh, substantially, um, there are areas where just 2 to 4% of the population would benefit because so many people already have insurance. Um, and something that I think is not, not well understood, which is what drove us to do this analysis, is how much variation there is within states as well. And if you take California as an example, um, there are census areas, which is how this map is built, um, where just 5% of the non-elderly population would benefit from, from the ACA, and other areas where uh, there are particularly pockets of, of high poverty and high uninsured rates, where over a third of the, of the population would, would benefit. So there are some very localized effects here, not just on people, but on healthcare providers and local governments as well. Um, but t- turning back to states, um, and let me start with the decision about whether to create a, a health insurance exchange. Um, you know, many states waited on the sidelines uh, once the law passed, saying they were waiting for the Supreme Court decision to play out. Uh, the Supreme Court decision played out, then they continued to wait on the sidelines until the election happened. Um, now the election has happened, and there, many of them are actually still waiting on the sidelines. Um, and by, by our recent count, uh, 18 states um, plan to build a state-based exchange, and that includes California, as you've heard, um, and another six intend to run an exchange in, in partnership with the federal government, where the state does some things and the federal government does others. Uh, but 16 states are, in fact, saying they won't participate at all at this point, um, and 11 are still pondering their options. Now, the, the question is, what, what happens if a state doesn't do an exchange? Um, as I imagine you know, the law um, anticipated this situation, in fact. Uh, maybe not the number of states uh, choosing not to run an exchange um, and to defer to the federal government, but at least the concept of states uh, not, not acting. Um, and the law provided a, a fallback, where if a state did not set up an exchange, um, the federal government would, uh, would operate the exchange in that state instead. Um, so if you think about what happens if a state doesn't act to, to create an exchange, from the point of view of consumers, in fact, not a whole lot is, is, is different. Um, the insurance market reforms, the prohibition on discrimination against people with pre-existing condition, the tax credits to make premiums more affordable in exchanges uh, starting in 2014, um, which are quite substantial, by the way, um, all start to, to flow regardless of whether a state creates an exchange or not. Um, now, that's not to say, and, and uh, we'll hear more about this from Bruce, I think, uh, not, not to say that there's no difference between a federally operated exchange and, and a state exchange. And I happen to believe there's some big advantages uh, to a state like California um, op- operating an exchange. Um, first of all, states already regulate insurance that overwhelmingly occurs at the, at the state level. So it's very natural to have a, an exchange operate at the state level as well. And, it, and frankly, somewhat chaotic to imagine a state regulating the insurance market and licensing insurers in that state, and then the federal government coming in and, and running the exchange. Um, you definitely have some potential for chaos and, and confusion. Um, more importantly, I think uh, states are in a much better position to do outreach and assist consumers 
um, in, in navigating the health system. Um, always where, where a government is coming into contact with consumers, the more locally that can happen, I, I think the better. Um, and uh, and this, this is a formidable challenge. Um, you know, people are not going to just enroll automatically on January 1st, 2014. It's going to take real effort um, to get people who are uninsured um, enrolled in Medicaid or enrolled in private insurance plans in the exchange. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how a state like California, which is frankly uh, way ahead of the rest of the country, how they're going to uh, succeed at doing this compared to, let's say, the federal government, uh, which will be operating the exchange in probably half the states around the country. Um, now, let's turn, um, turn to Medicaid. Um, and as I'm sure many of you know, the ACA originally required um, all states to expand their med Medicaid programs to everyone under 133% of the poverty level. Um, technically, 138% of the poverty level, but that's neither here nor there for now, I think. Um, and just so you have it in your head, that's about $15,000 a year in income for a single person and about $32,000 a year for a, year for, for a family. Um, Unlike with exchanges, though, the law provided uh, no federal fallback uh, because none was thought necessary. It was assumed that every state that ran a Medicaid program would have to do this expansion, so there was no reason for a federal fallback. Um, fast forward to last summer and the Supreme Court decision on, on the ACA, and that altered the equation, equation substantially, or the court said that uh, states essentially did not have to expand uh, Medicaid, and the federal government could not penalize them for not doing so, in effect making it, making it voluntary. Um, now, the, ex the expansion is still quite enticing for states. Uh, in the first three years, the federal government will cover 100% of the cost of, of all new enrollees in Medicaid as a result of this expansion. And over time, that phases down to, to 90%. Um, so states choosing to go ahead of it will be able to expand coverage to low-income uninsured people in their states, um, frankly, for pennies on the dollar, essentially leveraging uh, billions, in fact, in federal dollars um, that will save state and local governments from the costs of uncompensated care uh, they bear now and, and also bring in state tax revenues as federal dollars come into the state. Uh, but here, even more states, frankly, are still pondering their options when, uh, when compared to the decision about exchanges. Um, eight um, say they will not expand Medicaid. Um, five lean towards not expanding. Uh, four lean towards expanding. And 12 say they plan to expand, including California, which, in fact, has already started the expansion. Uh, but almost half of states, 21 states, are still, are still pondering their options um, or are, have, been, have been silent. Um, now, thinking about the, the consequences here of a state not choosing to expand Medicaid compared to the exchange, um, here, because of uh, there, there, there being no federal fallback, the consequences are, in fact, um, in fact quite, quite different. Um, if a state doesn't, chooses not to expand Medicaid, they'll have somewhat lower state costs um, uh, because they won't have to pick up uh, in, in the out years at 10 cents on the dollar. Um, but there will be no new coverage for poor people in that state, uh, continued on compensated care in the state as a result of, of continued poor uninsured, a poor uninsured population, um, and an enormous numbers, amount of federal dollars uh, left on the table. Um, and this table illustrates kind of what, what happens uh, if a state chooses to expand Medicaid versus a state that, that doesn't. Uh, with the Medicaid expansion, as I said, everyone up to 133% of the poverty level is eligible for Medicaid, regardless of their family circumstances. 
between 133% of the poverty level and four times the poverty level, which is over $90,000 a year for a family of four, uh, anyone who doesn't have access to employer coverage can get coverage in an exchange and has access to significant tax credits to make that coverage more affordable. Um, and anyone over four times the poverty level um, is, is on their own. They're guaranteed access to coverage, but, but not a subsidy. Now, without a Medicaid expansion, um, above 133% of poverty, it's the same thing. Um, through a quirk in the law between the poverty level and 133% of the poverty level, those people who otherwise would have been eligible for Medicaid if the state had expanded can now go into the exchange and get, get the tax credits in a, in a private insurance plan. Uh, but anyone under 100% of poverty who's not now eligible for Medicaid um, is essentially, essentially out of luck. So you have, a, a, uh, you know, frankly, a somewhat perverse healthcare system where there's expansions in access and coverage and affordability um, to... To, to, for the most part, those who lead at the least, need at the least, those those above poverty. Um, I should add that another group uh, not mentioned here who were left out, frankly, in, in any scenario are undocumented immigrants who are not eligible for uh, coverage in Medicaid or for coverage or, or tax credits in the, in the exchanges. Um, and that's likely to be a very big deal in California where large numbers of undocumented immigrants are uninsured and will remain uninsured um, even after these provisions go into effect in 2014. Um, so you have a large population of people relying on the safety net, um, but probably much less political support and financial support for that safety net um, to, to give them access to care. Um, so, so just thinking about this, this Medicaid expansion, as I said, California has already decided to, to go ahead with this, but, but many states have not. Um, if you look at the total cost of, of expanding Medicaid, it's about $800 billion over 10 years. Um, 93% of that co gets covered by the federal government, leaving 7% to be covered by the, the state. So essentially, from a financial point of view, states are making a decision about whether uh, covering 7% of the cost of covering these low-income uninsured people is worth it to leveraging that, that 93% of federal dollars. Um, in terms of, of people, about 10 million people uh, would be newly, 10 million currently uninsured people would be newly eligible for Medicaid if, a state, if all states expanded um, or, or not if they didn't. Um, states would see savings related to uh, uncompensated care in California. That's often at the county level, where counties cover the cost of public hospitals or, or clinics. Um, and there's a multiplier effect. As those federal dollars come into the system uh, and, and providers see higher revenues, there's an effect on state revenues as well, which the state can always, always use. Um, so let me turn, turn now to the, uh, to the fiscal cliff, the other, the other potential potential roadblock, roadblock here. Um, and, uh, you know, if you've been following the news closely, you, you know exactly what the fiscal cliff here is, but, but let me review a little bit. Um, you know, basically what happens is at the end of this year, uh, a bunch of tax cuts expire and a bunch of automatic spending cuts go, go into effect. Um, this includes what people refer to as the, the Bush era tax cuts um, uh, will, will expire at the end of this year. Temporary, temporary payroll tax cuts will expire. Um, the alternative minimum tax will start to hit more people if it's not patched or, or fixed. Um, automatic budget cuts, which were uh, the result of the debt deal, uh, last year will go into effect, um, and Medicare physician fees, as a result of the sustainable growth rate formula in Medicare, uh, will kick in, and Medicare uh, doctors serving Medicare patients will see a 27% cut in fees. 
Um, if you total that all up over 10 years, it's, a, it's about $7.7 trillion. Um, if, you, if you want to reduce the deficit, that's a good thing. It's a $7.7 trillion in deficit reduction. Um, on the other hand, it may very well trigger a, a recession um, when, they, when they kick in at the beginning of the year. Um, now, it might be a generational thing, but I, I can't help but think about the fiscal cliff and not think about Roadrunner cartoons. Um, the only thing I'm not sure about is whether President Obama is the Roadrunner and Speaker Boehner is Wiley Coyote, or it's the, uh, it'll be the other way around. But uh, we, will, uh, we will likely find out in a few weeks. Um, so, you know, what's, what's likely to, to happen here is, I mean, no one... No one really wants the fiscal cliff to, to, to actually happen. Some people may want to you know, dip their toes over the cliff a little bit for, for political leverage, but no one wants it to actual, all these things to actually go into effect. Um, but what it's become is a, a, um, a, essentially a, a rallying cry for long-term deficit reduction. Um, and, uh, and the real question, as I said, is you know, which, side, which side blinks, blinks first? Um, and when thinking about the effects on, on health programs, and remember that health is, a, is an enormous part of the budget, over, over a fifth of the budget, um, there are a number of parameters you have, you have to keep in mind. Um, the first is how much, how much deficit reduction are they, are they aiming for? Um, you'll hear numbers like uh, in President Obama's plan from, from last year, $4 trillion in deficit reduction over, um, over 10 years. Um, $2 million in deficit reduction is probably the minimum it takes to kind of stabilize the, the total debt that, uh, that the United States owes. Um, even President Obama's plan for $4 trillion um, still leaves substantial deficits 10, 10 years from now. So to eliminate those deficits, you're looking at you know, well over double that, um, which, is, which is the kind of plan you saw from, from the House Republicans, from Congressman uh, Paul Ryan. Um, last year. So, so clearly the, the amount of deficit reduction you're aiming for is going to affect then how much spending cuts you're going to see in health programs. Um, the other huge parameter, even for a, a given level of deficit reduction, uh, how you achieve that, whether it's through new revenues or through spending cuts, um, will also influence the, the amount of money you need to get out of, out of health programs. Um, and, and finally, there's, there's issues of just how you, how you count, what the, what the arithmetic is. Um, there is no consensus about how to, uh, or to back up. If you think about reducing the deficit by $2 trillion, $4 trillion, $6 trillion, um, you always have to think about relative to what. What are you reducing it from, um, which is referred to as a budget baseline. Um, and there's very little consensus in Washington, uh, particularly when you get to the uh, to new, news coverage of what that baseline should be. So um, you might hear two plans, you might hear one plan talked about on MSNBC that talks about $4 trillion in deficit reduction, and then you flip the channel to Fox and you hear another plan with $4 trillion in deficit reduction, uh, but you have no guarantee that those $4 trillion are actually the, the, same, the same $4 trillion or, or mean the same thing. Um, and then finally is, is kind of what, uh, for a given level of, of reductions in health spending, um, are they really kind of tweaks to the, to the structure of, of these programs, of Medicare, of Medicaid, of, of the Affordable Care Act, um, or are they uh, fundamental reforms of, um, of, of these entitlements? And, um, uh, you know, the, the reality is probably they will they will aim for a certain level of spending reductions and they'll call it entitlement reform because you have to call it entitlement reform in order to be perceived as serious in Washington. Um, but but there, is a, there, is, there will be a very big divide between some who uh, are willing to save money in these programs uh, but, but want to retain the, 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 basic, the basic structure. 
Um, and let me uh, make this a little more tangible to, to give you a sense. Uh, so as I said, the president's uh, deficit reduction plan called for $4 trillion in, in deficit reduction. Um, and that included uh, $1.6 trillion in revenues and also counted some cuts in, in discretionary programs, including health programs that, that have already been enacted. Um, so that plan was left with $359 billion in, in health reductions over 10 years. Um, and these were what I would call mostly tweaks to the system. It included things like applying drug rebates that uh, Medicaid programs now get around the country from pharmaceutical companies, applying those to drugs provided to low-income people in Medicare. Um, increasing income-related premiums, so charging higher-income people a a little bit more in Medicare premiums uh, than, uh, than, than the general premiums in the program and reducing payments uh, to providers, particularly for, for post-acute care after, after a hospital stay. Um, and one thing that's important to remember is that, that these $359 billion in savings are on top of uh, $716 billion in savings in the Medicare program that were enacted as part of the Affordable Care Act, which overwhelmingly were reductions in payments to drug companies, uh, insurance companies, and, and health care providers. Um, and you may have heard that $716 billion number bandied about in the campaign. Um, but but it, it becomes much harder once you've, once you've taken that much money out of the, out of the system um, to, get, to get further incremental dollars. Um, now, in contrast to that, sort of at the other end of the spectrum, is the, the House Budget Plan, which was championed by, by Congressman Paul Ryan. Um, that plan had much more in deficit reduction than, than the President's plan, um, but also had almost no increases in revenues. So the entire deficit reduction had to come out of spending reductions, and as a result, the spending reductions in health were, were quite a bit larger. Um, for example, he proposed converting the Medicaid program to a block grant to states and capping the growth in that block grant um, from year to year, which would, have, which would save eight, uh, $800 billion, um, over $800 billion over 10 years, and then much more in the years after that. Um, he also proposed converting Medicare to uh, what proponents call a premium support system, uh, what opponents call a voucher system, um, and uh, that would save a substantial amount of money. Over, over time as well. So you can see the you know, d differences between these plans and how they get their deficit reduction and, and what it means for, uh, for, for health programs. Um, it just gives you some things to watch for as this, as this debate un unfolds. Um, and, uh, and it's unclear, well, it's very unclear how it's going to unfold. It's very unclear when, when they'll get to specifics. Uh, but in Medicare, you're likely to see some of these same ideas that the president proposed, um, also potentially larger ideas like a, like a premium support or voucher system, um, although I think that's, that's unlikely to go anywhere now. Um, and then also, I think, a lot of discussion about raising the age of eligibility in Medicare. Right now, Medicare, uh, uh, people are eligible for Medicare starting at age 65. Uh, the age of eligibility in Social Security is transitioning to 67. If you raise the age of eligibility in Medicare to, to 67 as well, you would save a lot of money as people um, uh, went into the program later. Um, in Medicaid, I'm sure we will hear about a, the potential of a block grant for Medicaid, but again, I think that's uh, unlikely at this point. Um, also, what some people think of as a block grant light, uh, which is a 
per capita cap. Um, you know, block grant is where you give each state a fixed sum of money that they use with a great deal of flexibility to provide health care for low-income people. Uh, per capita cap would provide a fixed sum of money, but on a per-person basis. So the more people a state covered, the more money they get. And conversely, obviously, the fewer people they covered, uh, the less money they, they would get. Um, and then finally, um, as, as the quote I started with from, from Speaker Boehner suggests, uh, the Affordable Care Act will certainly be on the table as well in these deficit reduction talks. Um, I think a repeal, an outright repeal, um, is unlikely, uh, but certainly there are possibilities of a, of a delay. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in the world of Washington budgeting, uh, everything is on a 10-year basis. So if you delay the start of a program by a year, it means you have one less year of spending in that 10-year period, so you magically save money. So you get to count it towards deficit reduction, uh, even though it's going to cost the same in, in the end anyway. Um, I think there's also likely to be discussion of reducing the subsidies for people who buy insurance in the exchanges, the tax credits. Um, right now they go up to, or they're planned to go up to four times the poverty level. Uh, as I said, about $90,000 a year for a family of four. Um, there are ideas to maybe scale that back and have them only go up to, to three times the poverty level, um, which would, of course, leave, leave those people in that, that range with, with significantly higher premiums. Um, so, we're, you know, I think the next several weeks are going to be, next several weeks and months, as, as states consider their decisions uh, and start to implement uh, the Affordable Care Act, um, and as the deficit reduction uh, talks uh, become a little clearer, um, we'll say a lot about the future of health care in this country, not just the health reform law, but also, also Medicare and, and Medicaid. Uh, but, but truth be told, I think I've... Um, I've probably said that a hundred times that the next few months are going to be pivotal for the future of the healthcare system. So, uh, and if you have me back here in a few months, I'll probably say it again. So, I think the reality is uh, that uh, th th these issues are, are going to be perpetual issues. Uh, you know, just because we passed the Affordable Care Act and it is planned to go into effect January first, two thousand fourteen, that is that is hardly the end of it. I mean, Medicare and Medicaid passed decades ago, and we're we're still talking about them, and we're we're still going to be talking about all those issues um, decades. From, from now. Thank you. There. Uh, thank you, Larry. Uh, mine will be... Uh, a little bit different in that it uh, is focused on the private insurance market. Uh, that was the topic I was given, and I, I stayed within the parameters um, for a change. Uh, and uh, and I will uh, focus here on California for the most part, although I think the discussion about the other states is marvelously interesting, and I don't, for life of me, have any idea how they're going to deal with the states that are not playing, but uh, California certainly appears like it is going to play, and uh, and uh, we have been involved in in that in many respects. So what we want to do is just I uh, I've got about uh, a month left and. Uh, at Blue Shield before I retire, so it, it, uh, a shameless advertisement is necessary. Uh, and, uh, and then I will talk about the industry dynamics, what, how, they currently, how we currently spell, especially individual and small group business today, because that's what the 2014 to 2017 exchange will be about. Uh, some of the implementation 
challenges both for the exchange itself, although I'll just touch on those. Peter should have gone into those in detail. But from a private insurer standpoint and really from the market standpoint, uh, what are the challenges to success? And that's on the assumption that there is funding. Okay. So uh, we've been around this issue for quite some time. In 2002, I uh, uh, made a speech at the Commonwealth Club and uh, the next day got some credit for uh, what turned out to be a far more controversial proposal than we intended. Uh, we thought it was uh, high time for uh, universal coverage and so we stood up and said that and actually proposed a specific plan and uh, the next day I was uh, um, not getting calls from my friends in the insurance industry. So uh, uh, we were uh, actually very uh, focused on this because it was really part of our heritage. Uh, we, that's the reason we didn't think it was all that uh, radical. In fact, our mission is that, uh, to ensure high quality care to all Californians. And uh, you only do that if you've got universal coverage. Now, we didn't expect that Blue Shield would necessarily have 35 million people on its rolls. Uh, uh, 15 million would be fine. Uh, the, the fact of the matter, though, is that really was our mission. And so to stand up and say we were going to work towards that um, across the board for all Californians, we, we uh, took that next step. Um, we proposed it in 2002, as was discussed. Um, we worked with uh, Governor Schwarzenegger closely um, in his plan in 2007. And uh, we also supported, along with Kaiser, the California exchange law that was passed here in the state to support the exchange board that exists. And Peter uh, was here uh, and established his position. And we were also, uh, there were not many plans that were openly in favor of the Accountable, uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, there were a number of plans that I would say quietly uh, uh, endorsed it, or at least did not uh, 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 argue against it. Uh, there were also a number that behind the scenes actively worked against it. In fact, some of those, uh, uh, as it turned out, gave quite a lot of money through the Chamber of Commerce um, and at least temporarily were, were on the White House list of, of uh, um, culprits. But uh, 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 the bill passed and um, and uh, we certainly would have written a different bill if we'd written it, uh, as would every American if they sat down and looked at the bill. There's thousands of pages of things that, uh, some of which make, I think, eminent sense, like the fact that they uh, eliminate uh, discrimination based on health status, and there are other things that we think uh, perhaps they went too far too fast and may have an impact on success. But uh, we'll talk about that. First, just to give you a sense on the individual market dynamics, because the biggest changes for Californians will be in the individual market, not small group. Uh, <clears throat> currently, uh, there are lots of players, and I, and I uh, don't want to be presumptive here, but there, in fact, there are only really three players that, that matter in terms of the state, in terms of individual coverage. If you, now I'm not talking about Medicare or Medicaid. I'm talking about commercial insurance. And the vast majority of that coverage comes from uh, Anthem Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Kaiser in that order in terms of market share. So uh, we have traditionally, as has Anthem Blue Cross, as has Kaiser, had a fair block of business uh, in the individual market. Uh, one of the key elements of, of eligibility for that coverage uh, is determined by the com uh, consumer's health status. So it is not unusual for us today 
it's not 2014 yet. Uh, um, uh, and it, certainly this will go away in 2014. But we do, uh, in effect, look at your health history to determine whether or not we believe that over the period of time that you're going to be paying us premium, that we have any chance of re uh, covering that premium. And that, in fact, we can create a risk pool that is what we call balanced. Uh, and uh, there are some products we charge a little more for and a little less for, but the fact of the matter is if, if you're hypertensive and have other chronic diseases, the chances of getting an individual plan from any of these carriers is, is fairly unlikely until January 1st, 2014. And what we said even in 2002, we can't by ourselves take this on because of course we would attract all of the people that need care and others would attract those that don't. Uh, but on a level playing field, which we'll have in 2014, uh, we're excited and thrilled to be part of that market. Uh, the product options are actually, there's literally hundreds of individual product options in the state. Um, they aren't all that different. Uh, you really do have to be an actuary, practically understand the differences. Uh, brokers uh, primarily are the way that these products are sold and they're explained to, the, to the, uh, their consumers and, and customers. Uh, in general, these products have higher deductibles than your group coverage and, and often they have narrower networks. Uh, now in our case, we still brought, have a very broad network as does Anthem, but in other cases, uh, not so much. But we do have fairly high deductibles. Uh, it wouldn't be unusual to see a $3,000 to $5,000 deductible in one of our plans, uh, nor would it be in, in our competitors. So there is a significant number of choices, which some people say is a good thing, um, but it is awfully complex. And frankly, you need a broker or advisor to help you with this, um, even if you know the insurance market. My son came to me for the first time, he just turned 26, and had to enroll in group insurance. And uh, after I saw the benefits from Wells Fargo, I realized uh, why he needed help. So, uh, um, the, uh, also the way that this business model works is fairly straightforward. We work hard to get what we would call, again, a, a, a balanced risk pool, but in, in effect, uh, we are going to be turning down those that have more chronic health disease than not and charge lower prices than not. So these products are, tend to be the uh, least expensive in the market, but that's because, in fact, the people that are on these products tend to have relatively good health. So um, uh, that is one of the key parts of the current business model. Another key part is not only the multiple products, they're distributed primarily through brokers. Uh, that's less true for Kaiser, but for Anthem and Blue Shield, most of our products are sold to, uh, through brokers. We do have about 30% sold directly but far more are sold through thousands of brokers across the state. And so we actually don't, in the sale process, have a one-to-one -one relationship with the customer. Uh, and what happens then is, in effect, the broker becomes our customer, and there's a lot of attention and money paid to uh, brokers for commissions on these sales and service to brokers really determines, both commission and, and service really determines how you do in terms of the market because the products at the end of the day are very similar even though there's lots of them. We've got one, 
Anthem's got one. Kaiser might look a little different because it's an HMO, but, but there's a lot of similarity. And the pricing is really reflecting the benefits that have been chosen, the age sex of the individual, and their health history. And those are put into uh, the black box, if you will, and, and uh, we grind it around and a price pops out. And that price is going to reflect, um, are you 50 years old and have you had uh, a history of, of heart disease or uh, anything else? Or are you 25 years old and maybe you've never even seen a physician or if you've seen one, uh, it was for a dislocated elbow. Uh, and uh, if those are the kinds of things that we're comparing, you're going to see two very different prices. And in one case, you probably won't get coverage. In the other case, you'll probably get coverage at a very low price. Um, and, and that's the way the current business is sold. Small group is guaranteed issue today. So we can't turn down small groups. Uh, uh, but we can, if you will, rate them according to their age, sex, and health factors up to a, uh, a, a band uh, uh, that is 5% uh, either side of, uh, uh, so we can adjust them a little bit, but the bands are relatively narrow. So that's less of a change. That's why I say the biggest change in the market that will occur in 2014 is for the individuals. And that will part, one part of it will be a very good change, and that is that health status will have nothing to do with your eligibility. And in fact, we will be sanctioned, fined, uh, uh, probably even threatened uh, to lose our license if we continue to actually use health status as a way in which we get enrollees. So uh, there'll be very strong uh, prohibitions from doing that, as there should be in my opinion. Uh, now, the 2014 business model is very different. We take all comers, again, which we think is very good, but we've got to move from a very different view of how do we think about how we're going to achieve some level of bottom line, and that isn't going to be by doing a really good job of deciphering the risk and turning away the risk that, that we believe is going to be harder for us to manage and really get much, much better at getting uh, hopefully a diversity in our risk pool, that is uh, hopefully for every really sick person we get a really well person, that will be difficult, especially in the early years, because think about it, there's a pent-up demand in California for all of the people that have not been able to get coverage for many, many years. They're going to go to the exchange to get coverage and probably be willing to pay more than they would otherwise pay because they need coverage. And uh, so they may or may not be eligible for subsidies. We think by far the greatest population that will grow if the subsidies are still there after the fiscal cliff discussion is that will be that group. So the people that are in that subsidy category that effectively have been eligible for commercial insurance are most likely to enroll. Um, the second most likely to enroll will be people that have a fair amount of discretionary income but have not been able to get individual coverage because they simply couldn't get past the underwriting screens or the health status screens. Um, so the other thing that will be very different is the market is differentiated by what are called uh, the products are defined by metal standards uh, starting with bronze uh, and bronze being the lowest uh, and so the products will be very similar. They won't be identical. 
Uh, there will be some product differentiation, but I think what you'll see for the most part is most of the products in the exchange will look very much alike, whether they're a Kaiser product or whether they're a Blue Shield product or an Anthem product or a HealthNet product. They're going to, now, I'm talking about the individual and small group market. We're not talking about what you're going to see as University of California employees or students uh, if you're covered under the group policy here. Uh, those will still be untouched by the law at this point. Um, uh, that doesn't come till much later. Uh, and so at this point, um, for individual and small groups, um, uh, they'll have fairly simple choices to make. And they will pair up those benefit choices with prices. And so since those are the two pr primary things that consumers will have to judge from, unless they have a very strong feeling about Kaiser, or a very strong feeling, and this could be plus or minus, a very strong feeling of Blue Shield or Anthem Blue Cross or HealthNet or their county-run health plan, or unless they have very strong feelings, they're going to primarily pick on price. That's our view. I think it's a fairly safe view. That if someone else is 20% below us on price for the same benefits, especially if you don't know much about health insurance and you don't know much about one network from another. Um, and if you go to the book and your physician is in their prov provider network, um, my guess is that price will be the predominant factor by far, at least in the early going. Um, and I think you will see for this reason that most plans will develop multiple options. Uh, there won't be a single network. Right now, we have a network of about 400 hospitals and 55,000 physicians. That is not the network we will offer through the exchange. Our network will be much smaller, um, and our network will be based on physicians that we've worked with over the years that we believe uh, do a better job both on quality and cost. Uh, those networks are being developed as we speak, but we will be ready uh, coming um, uh, into the 2013 timeframe to offer those networks. Now, they won't be dramatically different. They might be half the size of our current network, so there's still going to be a lot of choice. Uh, but they won't be quite as big as what you've seen in the past, and I don't think we'll be alone in that. I think we'll see all of our competitors offer new networks as well. Uh, this is a swag at best. Um, uh, a, we brought in a consultant and uh, these numbers are what we would believe might happen based on the numbers in California. These, this is a private consultant's estimate, uh, which I won't name, uh, because who knows what's going to happen. But let me tell you why we think this is going to happen. We, of course, think individual coverage will go up. Now, will it go up to 3 million members? We don't know, but we think it's reasonable to say that there will be individuals out there, the ones that particularly are subsidized, the ones particularly that need care and can't get it, that will get it. Small group goes down. Why would small group go down? Because I think small groups that may be offering coverage will get out of the healthcare business. Uh, I think they will say, here's a certain amount of money, call it a voucher if you will, um, and you can go get health insurance and I'll pay you a little more at the end of the month. Uh, but in effect, you're on your own. Keep in mind that many small groups don't contribute anything. They offer coverage, but they don't contribute much today. So this will just allow them to get out of the administration business altogether. Uh, they'll say you've got you know, 30 choices in the California exchange. Uh, we wish you well. 
uh, and, uh, and that will happen. Now, there will be small groups that go in as a group as well, but there will be some small groups that will end up as individuals. Large group, we believe, will go down. These are what we call underwritten groups where we take the risk. Um, and the reason for that is we think that, uh, again, a certain number of large groups um, will take some advantage over time of getting out of uh, not so much the healthcare business, but be moving to the ASO business. What is the ASO business? Administrative services only, which means that they, the company takes all the risk. And the reason they would do that is they would not then be required to offer this level of benefit because the law allows for ASO groups to have skinnier benefits than the exchange benefits. And I was surprised when I opened up the package for my son. They don't have, at Wells Fargo, at least in Colorado where he works, they have an HSA product that is a $3,000 deductible and an HRA product that is a $2,000 deductible. That's the richest plan they offer. You can't get anything that is more comprehensive than that from Wells Fargo. And they have, well, probably 100,000 employees, I would guess, which was a shock to me. I, I assumed that they had probably had a more comprehensive plan. We certainly do for our employees. Um, but um, that is all you can get if you work for Wells Fargo. Uh, and now, it's not very expensive, but, uh, and they contribute nothing to your uh, HSA, uh, which also I surprised. Uh, so these are pretty lean benefits. But if you're in the ASO category, the federal government said, that's why we think it'll grow, uh, you do not have to play in the exchange. You can continue to offer benefits. You can go on the risk and you can offer benefits um, uh, as you see fit uh, and design the benefit package as you see fit. Uh, so we think that will grow. Uh, Medicare, of course, will grow. Medi-Cal, this is where I mean, Larry's an expert in this area. You know, people have talked about two million, three million, one million. I don't know how much it's going to grow, but it is certainly going to grow. Um, it, uh, you know, that expansion from 100% to 133%. Clearly, there's a, a group there that is all eligible, and I would think, and and hope actually that Medicaid recipients in the state of California uh, take the opportunity to get uh, pretty good coverage for. Uh, what they have not been eligible for before. Uh, the uninsured, uh, the, and this is an important point, you know, it's still in this state, uh, and again, 6.5, there's lots of numbers. You can see, see it from 7.5 down to, to as low as if you're talking about continuous uninsured members all the way through the year down to about uh, three or four. But uh, 6.5 is not a bad number of uninsured people in California. Uh, we will still have uh, probably more than half that when this is all done. Um, so there's still not universal coverage in the state of California, but this is a big down payment if it works. Uh, so what are our challenges? Well, just the uh, bloody rules themselves are thousands and thousands of pages. And this is not just our problem. HHS has done, actually, I think, a pretty good job of getting these regulations out. But they're very complex, and they're very difficult to wind through the system. And of course, then we have to program systems, computers, and people to make sure that we're ready for those. The most recent regulations just came out last week. And we have to be ready um, by this spring to 
send in our offering. So uh, it's right upon us. In June, uh, we send in our, our initial package in April. In June, they'll take a look at all that, make decisions about who is qualified and who isn't. The qualified health plans will then go into testing, and then in October, will be offered to the market. We hope to be offered to the market. Um, obviously, I guess there's a possibility that, that we won't. I think we probably will, but um, you know, we haven't set our rates yet because we haven't had the essential benefits defined until just recently, and now we can go about the rate setting process. And there's still a few regulations still in the pike. We have done, a, I think, a pretty good job um, on the natural of having good relationships with the regulators. We know all of the California Exchange Board members well. Uh, we certainly know Peter Lee well. We think they've done a good job, um, but they do have an awful lot yet to go. And whether they're going to be ready on January 1st, 2014, there is this issue of savings. There's also the issue of will we be ready? Um, and, I, and I think that's uh, um, you know, a legitimate question. Um, our approach is this has been a high priority for us. Um, we, we would look pretty stupid calling for universal coverage and not focusing on the first step towards it. So we have, for the last couple of years, uh, or uh, really even before the law passed, started focusing on getting ready. Uh, we are developing those narrower networks, including accountable care organizations, which I won't go into now. Uh, we do think dramatically reducing the cost, which we have done this last year in a few places, uh, will be the key for our success. And we are very focused on looking at understanding um, at a, you know, I think retail selling skills, which I didn't mention before, is going to be a, an asset that health plans really have not had in the past. It is not something like Amazon or like some of the others that are absolutely superb at identifying consumers' insights, that what drives their behavior, what motivates them to make behavioral choices. Behavioral economics, obviously, is a huge field right now. We need to get much better at that, and I think all the plans will be looking at it. We are doing it primarily through the lens of wellness. We have a program called Wellvolution, in which our employees and now the market can take advantage of, and we encourage people to get their biometrics checked, to get, if they're found to have a problem, to get that fixed, and uh, indeed to maintain that level of coverage. If they do all of those things, um, they get a free day off, they get a fair amount of cash, and they reduce their out-of-pocket premium for health uh, care down to almost zero. Um, and so uh, uh, we already have a sliding scale for the cost of health insurance coverage, but this takes it down, especially for the people on the lower end, uh, down to about nothing if they do all these things to get healthy. Um, and uh, we've also made it absolutely miserable for the smokers. You have to walk about three blocks in the rain. I shouldn't laugh. You have to walk about three blocks in the rain if you want to smoke uh, in one of our outside our facilities. Uh, we've also done some things like added uh, treadmills that people walk on while they do their work. Um, and uh, at about 1.8 per mile, uh, they can take phone calls, they can do claims, um, and unfortunately, we just everybody wants one, but uh, we'd have to have a building about three times the size to get them all in, so. Um, and we will have fewer products and hopefully a heck of a lot deeper insight. Uh, sustainability, uh, this is the issue that everybody's worried about here in California, or should be. These are much more comprehensive benefits than have been offered in the individual market. They're richer benefits, they're gonna cost more. 
there are richer benefits to a population that has, that on, on average is sicker. They're going to cost more. So one of the ironies of this is that even though coverage will be much wider and much more expansive in terms of access, the cost to get coverage will go up. And I'm just saying on average, I'm not saying for any individual. Now, some individuals may be paying a lot right now, but many individuals can get products from us for $150 a month, some even as low as $100 a month. Uh, there's not going to be a product on the exchange that's $100 a month, or I don't think very close. Now, the people that are getting the subsidies, that's why we think the people that's getting the subsidies may very well be by far the largest group that enrolls. Because you know, if the product's 350 and they get a substantial subsidy, that could get them into a place more similar to what they're paying now. We do worry about the weakness of the mandate. The mandate is a small tax, as defined by the Supreme Court. I think it's uh, about $100 the first year. Um, and as my 25-year-old said, what were they thinking? Um, uh, because when he turns 26, he has no intention of getting insurance. He said, I'm more than happy to pay my tax rather than have to pay a $300 insurance bill a month. Um, and uh, he'll take his chances. Uh, and what's the, the crime about this is, of course, then if he finds out that he has something wrong with him, he can go enroll. And so we were in favor of a very strong individual mandate. Now, I know the politics of that were incredibly difficult. but it is going to be important that we get a balance in this or it could be a problem. Uh, age rating, we right now age rate from seven to one. This goes down to three to one, which means we have people that are paying $100 for the product and we've got other people at the other end of the spectrum paying for the very same product, $700 because of their health, their health factors, this now says that the most we can charge is three to one. So if that person's paying 700 now, they'll go down to 300. That's great. But the person who's now paying 100, for us to make this even out is gonna have to go up. So that discourages people that are healthier from coming in. And so we will be out lobbying actually this I guess I'm leaving for Washington tomorrow. One more time to try to phase that component of the law in. Getting to a more consistent rate, we agree with, but we don't think we can do it overnight. And finally, the premium taxes that we will be paying as insurers, which will be built into your rates, is in the neighborhood of about $900 billion over, um, uh, I think, the first six years. It'll cost us now about 3% more uh, on our, all of our premiums um, uh, because we get taxed. It's the $716 billion that was saved in the ACA. So um, it is going to be a massive undertaking. I think we can ask ourselves, and I think the exchange board is tremendous, let me say that. I think they're good people, they know what they're doing, and they're still going to have a heck of a challenge getting ready for 2014. And will they be ready is a legitimate question. Uh, making it work, which is really what we care about, uh, and that's why we are talking about maybe slowing some of this down to make it work. But it's going to have to be partly a shared commitment that we really want this to happen as part of our social contract. Uh, we've always believed that health care is a right at Blue Shield. This means that there are going to, there's, and there's a lot we can do on the prevention side to get costs down. There's a lot health plans and providers can do to get costs down. Um, but there also has to be a commitment on the part of the consumer that 
they're going to be part of the system because if all we have are the people that are sickest getting coverage, uh, those premiums will be out of the touch of people that are less. We're focusing on affordability obviously is, is necessary and we liken it to a culture of coverage like a culture of non-smoking. If we can get in this country to the notion that it's just something that is, you know, it's the right thing to do is to have at least some form of coverage, it will dramatically change the overall cost for all of us. Thank you. I think it's on now. Yep. Okay. Open for questions and discussion. And I'm going to start off by asking uh, Bruce uh, one one question, and, and that is, uh, you talked about the fact that the benefits are going to be fairly standardized, and, and therefore the differentiation for companies like Blue Shield is going to be around prices. But At the least other initially. element. Uh, okay, and maybe this is uh, partly anticipating my question, is around uh, the provider networks that you're going to be associated right. with. And so, so could you say a little bit about I that? Think, yeah. I think right now the way we look at it is the time frame we have, in all candor, a lot of us were frozen on building new networks until, you know, there were, I said on my slide, there were two real potential uh, issues that could have stopped this in its place. One was the Supreme Court decision. So we looked at that and said, are we gonna go out and recontract with hundreds and thousands of providers until that is over? The answer was no. And then of course the election. Now, we went ahead and made the decision to move forward, but we weren't gonna turn up the burner f full tilt until after the election. So uh, while we got started, um, we we're just getting started on getting the uh, networks fully uh, done. So I think the first network that we apply to the exchange will um, be more cost effective and, uh, and more differentiating in terms of both cost and quality than, the, than our very broad, in a sense, undifferentiated large network. But I think it will be in subsequent years, 2015, where we will be able to say something about the quality of the network that we've built, the kind of uh, both the level of savings and the level of, of uh, um, uh, quality outcomes that we will be tracking through that system. But I suspect for us it'll be 2015. Do you anticipate, just a brief follow-up, do you anticipate that the cost and quality data associated with that network will be available to consumers on the exchange? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I, I hope everything is available on the exchange. Um, it, it, uh, we are working hard with some other health plans and with PBGH to try to make a whole lot of this information, including Medicare information, transparent. It's, it's been a piece of what we've been doing in the background for the last three years. Okay. Question here in the microphone. We've got a couple of roving mics, so just keep your hands up and we'll get you a microphone. Um, so the Affordable Care Act is an attempt to expand coverage. Yes. What happens if you're over the 400% and you currently have individual coverage? Yes. With all the changes you're making, does that affect any of those people? Yes. How? Uh, there were two options at the time that uh, the bill was passed, and you could grandfather your current individual subscribers. Uh, it was administratively 
there's about a 30% turnover in our individual block every year, which means, and so, and then likewise, maybe a little bit less so for Kaiser, but about the same for Anthem. So that means that uh, every year we lose a third and we add a new third. And so when we looked at that, uh, we said by the time the law is in place, because if you left us, you couldn't be, you lost your grandfathering. So we said to try to keep grandfathering in place with what will be less than 20% of our enrollees and track all of that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so we will have next to no grandfathered individuals that will be going into the exchange. There are some, uh, Anthem actually made the decision to do the same thing and they're not tracking it at all. And so they will have very few going in. Uh, but uh, that's the only option, is for people that have grandfathering, and that is they're in the same plan, in the same benefit plan, with the same provider uh, all this time. They haven't changed products, they haven't changed providers. They're still grandfathered and they can continue on that product and not go into the exchange and they will be in the product they're in today. Now that doesn't mean that the insurer has to keep the product. Uh, forever, but um, uh, probably for the most part, insurers, if they've had those products, there'd be no reason for them to drop them either. I, I would just add, if you think about what happens to those people with coverage, um, I mean, Bruce talked about the age rating, so uh, younger people with those products will see their premiums rise. Um, older people with those products will see their premiums fall. Right. Um, and the benefits will certainly be richer. I mean, it's commonly the case in the individual market that uh, maternity uh, care isn't covered, prescription drugs um, often are not covered or are covered in a very limited way. Uh, mental health is often not covered or covered in a very limited way. So, so that coverage will, will, will get more expansive, but obviously more expensive as well. Yeah. And we did prevail on the maternity coverage this year too. Um, Kaiser and ourselves pushed a bill through to make maternity coverage a basic benefit. So. Hi, I'm uh, Keith Nevitt. I'm a dual uh, Master's of Public Policy, Public Health. Uh, I had a question. You were talking about uh, that your Blue Cross was in favor of a stronger individual mandate. Could you elaborate a little Blue bit? Blue Shield. On... I'm sorry, Blue Shield. <laughs> sorry. Not that I'm sensitive. Uh, uh, you know, 20 years in this job, and I haven't, I've done nothing. I could, you know. Uh, uh, yes, we really believe that unless you got uh, a strong individual mandate that would mean that uh, there would be a pretty strong di financial disincentive not to enroll. Uh, now, we didn't expect it to be, you know, $500 a month, but $100 a year is hardly a disincentive for young, uh, healthy people. So uh, we would have argued that it would have to have been more than that. Uh, we didn't put a price tag on it, but what we said is that it had to be uh, substantial enough so that you were making a tough decision when you made the decision. And uh, we always knew that uh, uh, this would be an uphill battle politically, but we thought it was essential and we continue to think it's essential. So uh, we would continue to encourage Congress. This is will, to, to Larry's point, this, this will be continued as we go, and uh, we will be back here two years from now with a retrospective, how'd this go? And uh, I wouldn't be surprised that we'll find that the prices went up, 
that there wasn't a balanced risk pool, that insurers dropped out, and uh, consequently that the people in the pool are only the subsidized folks and they're going to have to redo certain aspects of the law if they want to keep all of a much richer set of players in the market. There's also I would just, there's an, another element to the mandate. It's not just the penalty, but the exemptions from the mandate as well. Uh, for example, people in jail are exempt. That's probably not a big deal. Um, but uh, but people who have to pay more than eight percent of their income are completely exempt good. from That's the penalty, good. which is a lot of a vast swath of middle-income people actually end up being exempt. Yeah. Hi, I'm Kathy McDonald. I have a question about these um, folks who are sicker, who are going to be insured and who haven't been well, insured. Well, they'll be eligible, yeah. The, the ones who choose to who be insured, yeah. who have not yeah. been, right. been insured, both from the sort of thinking about state policy and thinking about private insurance. Um, what what's sort of being anticipated in terms of dealing with that group to manage their costs? You'd, you'd mentioned well, like trying I, to get... I, I guess the good news is because we have been working, all health plans have been working uh, very, very hard on cro the chronic care disease management side of our business, uh, primarily in Medicare, but also we've now dr driven it down into the uh, sicker por portions of our population, even our CalPERS, Population, we know that one percent of Calpers members uh, are thirty percent of our costs. Uh, so we know that the the sicker, more chronic uh, care type people, and these are the kind of people that I think have probably not been able to get any coverage anywhere. Um, uh, we do have programs for them, and those programs will get better and better as we go through this. But we know that managing this population is going to be different than managing. Um, it's going to be much more like managing the Medicare population than it has been managing the individual population up until now. Up until now, the individuals, of course, have had the least health care needs of our, the populations we manage. And it'll be j turned on its head once this goes into effect. Is there a state side to that? Yeah, I would just say that there's, um, uh, there, there are actually a lot of issues, uh, particularly public health issues, that I think have not been... Um, fully dealt with for, for these groups. For example, there, there are state programs that, that care for people with chronic illnesses, um, and there will be a lot of fights about how those programs change or how their, their funding gets cut as, it, as they become less necessary. Um, probably the most prominent is the Ryan White program for people with, mm -hmm. um, with HIV AIDS, where that program provides preventive services and, and community-based services, but also a lot of assistance with drug costs. Um, as those people become eligible for Medicaid or for private insurance, uh, that, that assistance isn't necessarily necessary, but there would be a lot of resistance to, to cutting the funding as well. Take one question down here and then one back there. Thank you. Andrea Spurgeon, uh, Health Research for Action. Um, being that the average Californian reads at below an eighth grade level, mm. um, what are you doing or are you relying on the exchange to do most of the uh, outreach and communications to try to help people understand what their options are it, and to it, standardize yeah, the Yeah, It is an interesting approach that the exchange is taking, and I think this approach will be one that other exchanges, I don't think it's I don't mean to say that it's going to be unique to California, but they're taking on a very heavy lift that we traditionally have been responsible for, which is um, enrolling the individual, communicating their benefits, um, uh, uh, sending out the initial uh, information, 
And the only thing that we will be doing, and this isn't even absolutely certain, but we believe we'll be issuing the ID card. Uh, so, in fact, on that front end where we're very much involved now uh, in terms of having the f information going to the enrollee. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we align with what the state's doing? And the state hasn't, you know, they've not put their draft booklets in front of us, their, their draft website. Uh, I mean, they're, they're in the process of doing that, but uh, we're not clear on how they're going to approach it, and what we want to do is align as much as we can to support their approach, uh, rather than confuse the consumer. And, and, you know, out of left field, I just got something from Blue Shield that I thought I was dealing with the state, and now, you know, am I enrolled or am I not enrolled? We have to do this in tandem, and, of course, they're going to be setting the rules as to how we do it, uh, but... Those rules have not been defined yet, at least not at the detailed level. You need to make them operational. But we will, uh, again, they've, they've been great to work with. Um, we, you know, we talk to them practically every day. Uh, we will continue to work with them and try to design our materials to support those. We'll design our portals. Um, and there are probably some things that they will ask us not to be engaged in. And, uh, and so we'll have to be obviously very careful about those areas they want to control. Uh, the best thing we can do is make sure our efforts are complementary. Question back there. Introduce yourself. Oh, hi. I'm Ann Munoz, the Californian Program and Access to Care. Um, I, I was on a, a conference call this afternoon with a national organization on whole health, and we, they discussed the fact that it is possible that HHS will allow uh, a partial expansion of Medi-Cal, and I was wondering if you have heard anything about this. I, yeah, you're, you're the expert on this. Go ahead. Um, uh, well, the short answer is, is no. HHS has been pretty clear up until now <clears throat> that they will not allow a partial expansion. And, and the issue here is that, um, if you remember my, my table, the, the, Medica the Medicaid expansion is up to 133% of the, the poverty level. Um, the exchanges start covering people at 100% of the poverty level, so there's some overlap. And some states, now that the Medicaid expansion is voluntary, have said, well, what if we just expanded Medicaid partially? For example, let's say just up to 100% of poverty or even up to 50% to of the poverty, so started to do a little bit. Um, so far, the, the, uh, the Obama administration has said that will not be possible, um, but but as time goes by, they, they, there's certainly some potential for that, them to, to soften, um, as they see many states not coming in. That, that would be my guess, is that if, if it were going to be a partial expansion, it would, be, it would have to at least be to 100%. They would get, get covered in the exchanges. Or a basic health plan that could certainly be covered, yeah, through that method. Hi. Um, I have two unrelated questions. I'm, I'm Myrna Cozen. I'm an epidemiologist at UCSF. Um, my question for you, Larry, about um, what's going to happen to some of the public health infrastructure uh, when, when the Affordable Care Act comes into play. It, Ryan White's a good example because it pays not only for direct provider services, but it creates a whole service infrastructure. So how is HRSA going to protect that infrastructure from 
from cuts. And the same would apply to other categorical programs and block grants, like maternal and child health. It's not just a matter of no, direct I, service provision. No, absolutely. Um, well, I think you, you, you sort of have a collision coming between the, uh, the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and the idea that, that all these people will now be insured and therefore may not need these services. I mean, not, not necessarily true, but a, a, a presumption of that. Um, and the deficit reduction, the pressure for deficit reduction and the need to, to cut spending. Um, and uh, I, I think it's going to be a real challenge to maintain funding in those programs, um, and uh, particularly programs that, that serve people who are ineligible, for example, undocumented immigrants. When I was uh, in Massachusetts, we had a program that, that served pregnant and parenting, uh, pre pregnant women, up to 200% of the poverty level. And then Medicaid was expanded up to 185% of the poverty level. And everyone expected the caseload on this program to drop dramatically. Well, it turns out it didn't, because everyone left were primarily undocumented uh, immigrants. Um, and once that becomes known, it becomes very difficult to, to maintain support for these programs in the, the broader political system. Um, the two other things I would mention is, is uh, I had mentioned that it's part of the deficit reduction debate. There has been, there have already been dramatic cuts in discretionary programs, which in most public health programs are, are discretionary. Um, $1.7 trillion over, over 10 years. So these programs are going to be uh, under really severe caps federally. Um, and it's, it's, it's just going to be a challenge to maintain funding for them. Time for two last questions, maybe one back there and one down here. Hi, uh, my name is Steve Dell. I'm a doc. Um, anybody who's worked in any other advanced industrialized country realizes that along with a much lower percentage of GDP spent on medical care, uh, the whole way medicine is conducted is rather different. Partly this is uh, top-down, there's less money to be spent, and people adjust. And partly this is bottom-up. People have a different approach to medicine altogether. Uh, Kaiser does a pretty good job with the bottom-up approach in terms of rationalizing how they deal with a host of human illnesses. Uh, is there going to be any kind of attempt to do the same thing, or are we going to be left with what we have today namely uh, an army of uh, uh, adjusters whose job it is to control uh, an equal army of uh, claimants asking for this, that, and the other thing. Well, I, I couldn't speak for uh, the various armies uh, or the Navy or the Air Force, but I would say this. Um, our current philosophy, uh, apart from this, on payment is to kill fee-for-service payment. Um, as far as we're concerned, uh, billing more for widgets is the wrong incentive. And uh, I think what Kaiser does well is to say, either by salary or by some form of capitation, this is the amount of money that we have to serve these patients. And there's lots of great ways to use that money. It's the approach we took in building our accountable care organization in Sacramento, where we've had a uh, zero percent trend for three years now and uh, tremendous customer satisfaction and um, and we're doing the right things uh, smothering the people with care that need it and not providing care to people that don't need it so um, it can happen in the non-Kaiser system uh, we are ourselves on a very fast track to get 
Um, our original goal was 20. We've just up pushed it to 30 accountable care organizations across California over the next two years. Um, I don't know if we can get there. It's a very aggressive target. And, and frankly, there are, uh, physician leadership on the ground is the key to success. And uh, we've got to find or help uh, train the right physician leaders. Otherwise, uh, not that the hospital's not important and not to say that all of the other constituents aren't important, but the key to this is physician leadership that is going to um, appropriately deal with, um, you know, being willing to do the things that are the right things for the, the patient, and that sometimes means nothing at all. And sometimes that, as I suggested, means if necessary, going to their house uh, uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning. So um, it is going to be that kind of care system that we are investing in. Uh, others are approaching it different ways, other, others of our competitors. Um, they can speak for themselves. But I personally believe that if we don't approach this in some fashion like what I just described in terms of organizing medicine differently, then the uh, ability, given all of the cost pressures, uh, the ability to provide quality health care to Americans is, is not very high. And I don't think making it a national system will improve that, especially if it's based on fee-for-service. Okay. Barbara, last question. Hi, my name is Barbara Tarasas, and I work for Tomerso Vasquez Health Center. And I wanted to thank both of you, both Kaiser and Blue Shield, uh, Blue Shield with the foundation and the gifts that you've given to the safety net. Without your gifts, I think we would not be able to serve the people that we serve. Large proportion of our clients in the safety net are undocumented workers. Mm -hmm. What do you perceive the future of that safety net infrastructure to service, the, the capacity to service, continue to service the immigrant undocumented population? Um, I mean, I'll start. I, I, I think it's very tough. Um, you know, once, uh, again, similar to, the, to Ryan White or maternal and child health programs we, we were talking about, once there's this presumption that kind of everyone who, who deserves insurance, so to speak, um, has access to it, maintaining support for the safety net is going to be very difficult. Um, and, and at least historically, you know, selling it on the basis of the, 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 uh, the services that are being provided to undocumented immigrants has not been a, a winning political uh, strategy. So, so I, think it's, um, I think it's tough. And I think the other thing is, and Bruce talked about the, the provider networks, um, you know, many of the uh, safety net providers are going to be working very hard to try and get in the networks uh, that these private plans are, are developing, not only for the exchange, but obviously for, for Medi-Cal. As, as well, and they're going to be under the same pressure to um, uh, to to get to get revenues in from from insured patients, right? But and and to me, probably the 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 um, the best potential for a for a funding stream for for people who are left out of the system, particularly undocumented immigrants, um, is is essentially for for these these providers, and you would know better than I would, to to move money around to to be able to get some revenues in from the private paying side or the medical side, and and then use those resources to deal with people who, who can't pay. I, I just agree. It's going to be very tough. Many of these providers are getting some form of revenue, even if it's through foundation grants or others, to take care of these folks. They now, 
because we all know that one of the things we didn't talk about, but we all know one of the other huge challenges California is going to have is physician capacity and Medi Medicaid in particular. So if now Medi-Cal physicians can fill up their practices uh, with patients who are fully covered through the exchange, it, you know, some of the other programs they've been paid that sometimes are there and sometimes aren't, um, they're probably going to move towards the programs that are consistently making payments. So I think that does put us in a uh, very tough position with people that are undocumented. And I, I, it's just one of more of the issues. Incidentally, the uninsured that I commented on did not include the undocumented. So that's actually a bigger number. Okay, I know there's a few more questions and you'll have an opportunity to uh, ask them. We have a reception right outside, so please join us and join me in thanking both of our speakers again. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.